Good morning, church. As Quinn said, we're reading today from, he leads us to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 30, and we'll be reading to chapter 32, verse 47. Then Moses spoke the words of this song until they were finished in the ears of all the assembly. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you. Ask your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. He found him in a desert land. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. He rode him high. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate the produce of the field, and he suckled him with honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with fat of lambs, rams of Bashan, and goats, with the very finest of the wheat. And you drank foaming wine made from the blood of the grape. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The Lord saw it and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols, so I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. 
For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth and its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountains. And I will heap disasters upon them. I will spend my arrows on them. They shall be wasted with hunger and devoured by plague and poisonous pestilence. I will send the teeth of beasts against them with the venom of things that crawl in the dust. Outdoors the sword shall bereave and indoors terror for young man and woman alike. The nursing child with the man of gray hairs. I would have said I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. Had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversary should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant, it was not the Lord who did all this. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of poison. Their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of asps. Is not this laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Then he will say, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offering. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people. He and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, 
that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. This is the word of God. Stories like really this entire chapter are very powerful things. If you think about it, uh, good stories are the, the foundation of the best works of fiction and cinema. They're, they're one of the best ways of teaching history. When they're used to communicate truth, uh, stories have a, a remarkable ability to impart instruction, to warn, to encourage, to correct. Now, you think about you know, what the prophet Nathan did when he needed to correct King David. What did he do? He didn't pull out a detailed outline. He told a story. Uh, when Jesus wanted to explain to old and young alike the, the goodness of the kingdom of God, what did he so often do? He, he spoke in parables. He told stories. The Bible itself doesn't just contain stories, though. Um, it is actually one big story. The whole Bible. A, a story of creation and, and fall and redemption and consummation. A story that, that explains our experience in this world better than any other. A story that gives life precisely because it's not centered on you or on me. It's centered on Jesus, the eternal Son of God. To, to be created in God's image is to be given an awareness that, that we are part of his story. That's Romans 1. But that doesn't stop us from suppressing the truth and retelling our stories to ourselves, to one another, in ways that God winds up conspicuously absent. In that sense, we're just like the people of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy. We forget, wasn't this their perpetual problem? We forget that God is the center of our story. And something or someone else begins to loom larger. Honestly, that's, that's the root of all sin, friends. We forget God's the center of the story. And in this chapter, right before Moses dies, he gives Israel the incredible gift of a story. A story song, really. And it's a, it's a story song about their past and their future. And it's a true story, not make-believe, that, that urges them and urges us to order our lives according to God's big story. That's Moses' pastoral goal here. And he comes right out and shares that goal at the very beginning, his introduction in verse 3. Look there. What is this whole story song all about? Moses says, for I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness 
to our God. Please realize a scribe here is not a description of what Moses is about to do. It's not an indicative. It's an imperative. It's a command. Israel, I'm going to proclaim the radically God-centered story of your life through the words of a song you can't forget. Why? So that years from now, not that many years from now, when you wander away from your God, and every chapter of this story comes to pass exactly as God has warned and said. That moment, you will respond by remembering the song. Remembering you're part of his story. And you will turn and ascribe greatness to our God. He gives them this song so that when they're suffering under the weight of sin, they will turn back to the Lord, trust him, and order their life according to his ways. Here, here's the main point of this entire song. The main point is, is arguably the, the single most important thing Israel needed to remember as she is standing on the precipice of the land of Canaan eager to receive all the goodness that the Lord had promised her forefathers he would give. It's what she needed to remember that moment. And friend, it's, it's the most important thing we need to remember today. So here's the center of the story. In a sentence, God is faithful in salvation through judgment that we might know there is no rock besides him. If you and I could only remember that, God is faithful in salvation through judgment that we might know there is no rock besides him. Remembering that story, which we're all a part of, will have a profound effect on the way you navigate your stories this year. Because that story is God's story, the true story, and Moses tells it as a story of four rocks. All good stories have repeating images, I think. And this story is no exception. So he tells this as a story, a song of four rocks, which are ultimately one rock. So that's how we're going to move through it, okay? The rock who gives life, that's the first one. The rock we reject, that's the second. The rock of self-judgment, that's the third. And the rock of salvation. That's the fourth. Ultimately, there are only one rock. We'll see that shortly. But let's begin with chapter one of the story. Okay? Chapter one, the Lord is the rock who gives life. Verses four to 14. The song begins where, where all true stories begin, honestly, with the God who created us and whom we live and move and have our being. Look at verse four. Tells us what he's like. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. Why does Moses compare God to a rock? Think about that. Well, because rocks are, are what? They're enduring. They're, they're immovable. They're reliable. They're, they're sure. They're everything you and I are not. If you've ever been to Yosemite National Park or 
watch National Geographic movies about amazing places like Yosemite. Think El Capitan, a rock. There's a constancy, friend, a consistency, an absolute faithfulness at the core of who God is. Not with respect to wickedness, but like a gangster who, who was always doing violence. No, with respect to justice and righteousness. All his works, Moses says, past, present, and future. What, what does he say? All his works, survey them all. They're perfect. All that he does is only and always just good and right. Why? Because his divine nature is without iniquity. And all he does perfectly conforms to who he is. His character and his nature are inseparable. His ways are justice, Moses says, because he is completely just and upright. He doesn't just do justice. He does justice because he is justice. God's integrity, unassailable. His deeds, matchless. No one in the universe, my friend, is more dependable than God. He's he's a rock like no other. From, From the foundation of the world, from the dawn of time, he has reigned over the nations. And yet... In the overflowing goodness of his mercy, look at verse 9, he chose a particular people for himself. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Think think about this. Of, Of all the nations on earth, God gave Israel the incredible privilege of being his treasured possession. The the unmerited object of his affection. And verse 10 tells the story. Look there. He found him in a desert land enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And in the howling waste of the wilderness, what a picture that is, where, where Israel has wandered for the last 40 years. It's, it's a howling waste. That, that's a picture of what life apart from God is like. It's hopeless and helpless. You're condemned to death. So what did the Lord do? Keep reading. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Think about that. No one compelled God to do those things. He's he's not like a kid that has to be told on Christmas morning, Go hug your grandma who gave you that present. (laughs) He encircled Israel. He cared for her because he delighted to do so. To give her the gift of life, relationship with himself, simply because he wanted to. He, He loved her because he's lovely. And delighted in the freedom of his will to make her lovely. 
They were exceedingly precious in his sight, the apple of, of his eye. So what did the Lord do? He fed them, millions of them, every day for 40 years. <laughs> How many of you regularly cook and feed for other people in your life besides yourself? Some of you? Yeah. Imagine that. <laughs> Millions of people every day for 40 years. He gave them water where there was no water. He miraculously kept their clothing from wearing out. He protected them. He sustained them. He was unimaginably patient with them. Look at verse 11. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. What a image that is, brothers and sisters, of of care, of affection that's both incredibly strong, incredibly tender. Nobody else did for Israel what the Lord did. And eventually he brought her to Canaan, the land he promised to give her forefathers in Deuteronomy Israel has yet to receive it in full, but she's already experiencing some of the blessings of the land in the plains of the Transjordan. Look at verse 14. Curds from the herd, milk from the flock, the very finest of the wheat, foaming wine, what, just piling up those images. What, what's the point? What God gave Israel was infinitely more than the basic necessities or all she needed. Think about it. He gave her all she could ever want, all she could ever imagine. The the Lord lavished unmerited blessing on Israel in abundance. He was was rich toward her in every way. It's, It's one divine miracle of generosity after another. That's the point of honey coming out of the rock. That's not natural. That's supernatural. Or oil out of the flinty rock. That's not natural. That's supernatural, miraculous, supernatural, superabundant generosity. 1 Corinthians 10.4, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Friend, hear me on this point. You too owe your very life to God. Every one of us in this room. He, he created you. He knit you together in, in your mother's womb. There, there's nothing you have. No, no ability, no skill, no, no resource, no provision, no power that, that you haven't received. Apart from him, you can do nothing. Apart from him, you would have nothing. You, you couldn't even breathe the air that just came into your lungs right now if God didn't give that breath to you? What does James tell us? Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights as creatures, we could not be more indebted to our Creator. Both the glory of who God is and what he's done. Both of those things. As for Israel, so for us, 
demands our devotion. And that's, that's where the song begins. With what? The rock whose work is perfect. The rock who gives life. A God of faithfulness. Supremely worthy of praise. Supremely worthy of allegiance. What's, what's the right response to that kind of God? To a verse 4 kind of rock. Gratitude. Trust. Obedience. Right? But that didn't happen. At least not for long. Chapter 2. The Lord is the rock we reject. Verses 15 to 18. Look at verse 15 with me. But Jeshurun grew fat. Another name for Israel. Kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. What's Moses describing? About a coming day in in Israel's story. Well, he's saying, if the wilderness represented a test of adversity, guys, the precipice you're standing on, the land you're about to go into, It's going to be a test of prosperity. That's where you're headed. No troubles. No problems. Hey, Matthew, how's it going? It's going great, man. Two new cars, beautiful house, great wife. Look at the kids. Good. How are you? I don't want to answer now. (laughs) Good. No suffering. To keep her mindful of her dependence on the Lord. Only abundance and blessing. How did Israel respond to that test? Well, she rejected the Lord. She rejected the Lord. She exchanged loving and serving the rock who bore her and gave her life for pagan idols. It's the same thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. It's the same thing we do today. Naturally, we, we exchange worshiping the one true God for what? Look at verse 16. Strange gods that are no gods at all. Verse 17, new gods that what? Promise pleasure without requiring all that bothersome obedience stuff. Entertainment or ease. Wealth or reputation in the eyes of men. Friends, we are, we are endlessly creative in, in creating and selecting alternatives to the everlasting rock. He, he's been nothing but faithful, and yet we, we turn our backs on him and we embrace lovers we think we can control. In a word, we sin. We take classes and read books on mindfulness hoping to find peace by, by getting more in touch with what we're feeling, with what we're thinking, when, when verse 18, look there, is the real problem. You were unmindful of the rock. The rock that bore you. And you forgot the God who gave your birth. Now, notice, Israel never flat out denied God's existence. That's that's not your greatest danger. 
if you're sitting in this room hearing me preach this morning. It's not your greatest danger. She simply stopped paying attention. That's our danger, right? That the Lord just gradually faded from view. Friend, that, that is the same danger facing us today. Our, our tendency to become unmindful of the Lord remains. I, I read from Hebrews 10 earlier and teeing up Jesus' testimony. I, this is why we need the community of the church. I need you to stir me up, to remember, to be mindful, to not forget that our God is sovereign and loving and wise. And, and things like the preaching of God's word or, or sharing in the sacraments or conversation with fellow Christians, th- those are supernatural means of grace that God gives us so that we would remain mindful of him. Scripture teaches us we cannot remain mindful of the Lord and keep remembering the Lord apart from the grace of community. Whenever we sin, We relate to God in the opposite way that he relates to us. He's what? Faithful and just. What are we when we're sinning? Faithless and unjust. And I'm not just talking about what, you know, bad guys do on the news every night, okay? I'm talking about what every one of us has done. We've we've all gone astray, right? We've all turned to our own way. Look at verse 5. They've dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. What what do the first two chapters of this story tell us? There's a rock who gives us life, and that's the very rock we reject. And the question in verse 6, look there, indicts us as sinners, friends. No less than it indicted Israel. Do you thus repay the Lord? You foolish and senseless people. Is not he your father who created you? Who made you and established you? Chapter 3. The Lord is a rock of judgment. Look at verse 21. They have made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Don't don't misunderstand that, okay? Some of you read that and thought, sure sounds like God's retaliating. (laughs) He's not retaliating. He's saying, Israel, because you've turned away from me to false gods, I'm going to turn away from you. Why? Because I refuse to participate in spiritual adultery by blessing you when you want nothing to do with me. I will not participate in that. I will not enable that. I, I will not be party to that. I will not let you domesticate me and shove me in your back pocket and get all the blessings I have given you while the entire course of your life is ruled by one thing, what I think, I feel, and I want. I won't be part of that. 
won't do that. I will give my help and favor to another nation that is not my people. A nation I will use to punish you for your unfaithfulness. Well, what's he talking about? It's, it's the, every, all the verses that follow 21, it's, it's the judgment of exile. That too is in the future, but, but God says that's coming. That's certain. The day when the Lord allowed the, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians to destroy his people. And again, in Deuteronomy, it, it all has yet to happen, but the Lord foresees the rebellion and he points to a certain response. Here's what's going to go down. The surrounding nations, Israel, will triumph over you to the point where you become jealous of their success. <laughs> and you finally ask, why, 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 why is Yahweh prospering them instead of us? I thought we were God's chosen people. Why are we suffering? I always put money in the offering. Why am I suffering? I, I did everything that pastor told me to do. Why do I have cancer? I've followed you. What are you doing to me? I thought I was yours. I thought I, I thought I was one of the good guys. Verse 22 provides the answer. For a fire is kindled by my anger, and it burns to the depths of Sheol, devours the earth in its increase, and sets on fire the foundations of the mountain. Please, please hear me on this point, friend. Especially if you've sat in Christian services for decades. Please, please, please listen to me. The judgment of God is not a religious scare tactic. It's not something dramatic pastors come up with just to manipulate people into doing what they're supposed to do. The, the judgment of Almighty God is a fixed, immovable certainty in the story of mankind. You can't stop it. You can't avoid it. You can't detour around it. It's happening. He's a rock of judgment. And frankly, it's the moral foundation of the universe that evil will be punished. Righteousness will be rewarded and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. What, what does that mean for us, friends? We will be held accountable you will be held accountable for what you have done with the life God gave you. There will be no escape, even in the grave, in the depths of Sheol, God will find you. The, the increases of this earth may, may distract you for the next 40 years, but, but it can't hide you from your maker. When Christ returns to, to judge the living and the dead, all, all that 
stuff in which we trusted is going to be devoured, Moses says. No hiding place. Even the most seemingly immovable rocks in this world. Look at verse 22. The things we're so prone to trust in. You just think, if all else fails, that relationship, that skill set, that whatever, that'll be my refuge. That, that's my mountain. Friend, even that'll be consumed by the wrath of God. Romans 3.19 says, the whole world will be held accountable to God. His judgment is what? It's, it's personal, it's comprehensive, it's inescapable. Which raises the question, why then is Israel not completely wiped out? <laughs> right? Well, it's not because God saw something good hidden really deep within her. He didn't discover a, a previously buried better angel. No. It has everything to do with God's concern for his holy name. Look at verse 26. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will wipe them from human memory. And if he had done that, he would be nothing but just. Feel the weight of that. If he had done that, if, if he were, the moment sin entered his world to make an end of us, brothers and sisters, the host of heaven would have cause to praise the name of the Lord for all the rest of eternity. His justice is not something we apologize for. It is intrinsic to his glory. Because he's jealous for his glory. And because he's jealous for his glory, he didn't want Israel's enemies to conclude something like this. Man, look at us. We whoop those Israelites because we're stronger. Because we're better. Because our gods are superior. Look, look at what our hands have done. No, says the Lord. No, no, no. Israel's judgment is my doing. Unless you rob me of glory by concluding your will is supreme, here's what I'm going to do, Assyria and Babylon. I'm not going to let you wipe them out. You, you realize here, friend, that we're, we're coming face to face with the the very foundation of what it means to fear the Lord. Do you know what that is? Where, where does the fear of the Lord begin? It begins with recognizing the radical God-centeredness of God. God is not you-centered. God is radically and gloriously and eternally and supremely God-centered. All he does is driven by a supreme concern for the honor of his name. And in verses 30 and 31, Israel begins to get that. <laughs> the center of the story, God at the center of the story, starts to take its rightful place. She begins to recognize she's ordered her life according to the wrong story. 
She, she comes to her spiritual senses, at least starts to, as it were, and, and begins to exchange a, a man-centered fiction for a God-centered reality. She, she realizes, as I mentioned earlier, God will not allow us to domesticate him, to, to, to rack him up next to all our idols and, and continue to enjoy his blessings. Either we submit to his righteous rule and center our lives on him, or we will be judged accordingly. Just like Israel. That, that, verses 30 and 31 are where all true repentance begins. With recognizing our suffering apart from God isn't pointless. It's, it's his way of opening our eyes to see just how much we need him. What, what does Moses say? What voice does he put in Israel's mouth? How could one have chased a thousand and, and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock, surrounding nations, is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. The, the lights are starting to come on. You, you realize that. In what way? Israel realizes the Assyrians and Babylonians didn't overcome her because their gods were superior. They overcame her because it was the Lord's doing. They, real, they begin to realize the problem, what's, what's the problem been all along? It's been my relationship with the Lord. That's the problem here. He's, he's been our rock all along. We, we experienced his covenant faithfulness in the past as a rock who gives life. We're experiencing his covenant faithfulness in the present as a rock of judgment. But notice, he's still our rock. He's still our Lord. And in that, that little word, our. A ray of hope shines. Could he become a rock of life again? And the stunning answer is yes. Because while wayward Israel had exchanged gods, God had not exchanged peoples. And yet salvation for Israel, no less than salvation for us today. That doesn't come from something we do for ourselves, but something that God in his grace and power works for us. Which brings us to chapter 4. The Lord is a rock of salvation. A rock of salvation. Look at verse 34. There's something I have purposed, the Lord declares here. There's, there's a sovereign plan that I've stored up. I've, I've carefully guarded it. It's not, it's not a backup strategy, Israel. It's a treasure. Oh, I love that image. A, a treasure. It's, it's a resolve, a divine, trinitarian resolve from eternity past in which I delight says the Lord. What is it? Verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, 
for the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. What what is God promising? He's promising a coming day when he will save Israel by judging the nations who had taken her captive and brought her into exile. A day of reckoning's coming, my people. And when it does, I will rescue you. I will vindicate you. Fueled by compassion, I will act for the honor of my name. As I saved you from Egypt through great acts of judgment, so I will save you again. But that promise, in verse 35 and 36, what, what does that ultimately point to, brothers and sisters? That points to the gospel. It points to the gospel. To, to the day when, when Jesus, our rock of salvation, what, what did he do? He crushed the serpent's head on the cross. He, he destroyed, he vanquished, he took vengeance on all the powers of sin and death. What does Colossians 2, 15 say? He, speaking of Christ, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And then he rose from the grave, proving that his death was more than sufficient to atone for the guilt of your sin to destroy the power of your sin and and to replace the death you deserve with with an assurance of eternal life for those who are willing to trust him. Salvation through judgment. And when does God promise it will come to pass? Look at verse 36. When he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free, That's striking. I mean, he doesn't break in when Israel's power is small. (laughs) He breaks in and saves when her power is what? Gone. Completely and utterly gone. Why? Why wait until she's helpless? Couldn't you reduce some collective anxiety here, Lord? Just, Just wait till it's dropped a little bit, then engage. No. Why wait till it's gone? so that Israel and everyone around her would be abundantly clear, salvation belongs to the Lord, not to us. It's it's the same reason God brings us to an end of ourselves today. Maybe maybe that's how you feel right now. Matthew, I'm listening to you, but not a lot of this is registering because just spiritually, look at my life, whole thing, I feel like I'm at an end of myself. I feel like God's toying with me. He's messing with me. I don't even know why I came here this morning. Friend, he's he's not messing with you. He loves you. And he loves you so much that he will not stop bringing you to an end of yourself because it's not until we feel and know the depth of our need for him, that we will turn and discover he's the God we needed all along. Friend, take heart if you think 
you're at the end of your rope. That, that is precisely when the Lord delights to redeem and restore. You're, you're not there by accident. You're, you're there by God's design. Look to the Lord. And the same thing that compelled him to bring Israel home from physical exile is the same thing that compels him to bring us home from spiritual exile today. Look at verse 37. Then he will say, the Lord, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge, who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let let them be your protection. There is some serious holy taunting going on in that. (laughs) You know, there's such a thing as godly taunting. Yeah, well, this is it. What's, what's the Lord doing? He's reminding us that, that all the false gods that we cling to, they never deliver as promised. They never do what we think they will do. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. He's the only rock and there is no other. Look at verse 39. You get to verse 39, at chapter 4 of the story, and this, friends, is, is not just the entire point of this song. I would argue it's the entire point of Deuteronomy. It's Deuteronomy in a verse, verse 39. This is the reason God works salvation through judgment. See now that I, even I, am he. And there is no God besides me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Israel, king's way, the Lord alone is God. There is no other that the power of judgment and salvation are exclusively and eternally his. his. His will is supreme. His purposes are irrevocable. Here's what that means. You are not God, and your boss is not God, and your broken body is not God, and the friends who will betray you this year, and the spouse who disappoint you last year, and the pastor or the politicians that could disappoint you this year. None of them are God. Your life doesn't come from them. Your life is not controlled by them. Your life comes from the Lord. Will you not trust him? Will you not trust him? Will you not hope in him? He is the rock of your salvation. Friend, that is the most important thing you can remember when you wake up tomorrow. (laughs) Today, right now, he is God. The Lord alone is my rock. There are some people that tell me, I've heard this, I'm really not into all this doctrine stuff, Pastor. All this theology stuff. I'm, I'm a simple guy. I'm a, I'm a practical Christianity kind of guy. I want to have a word with you. <laughs> From the whole church, okay? So here we go. Friend, the monotheism at the heart of our faith the utter uniqueness and supremacy of God as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ could not be more practical. That couldn't be more practical. What do I mean? Well, when one kid is screaming tonight and the other is throwing up, what do you need to remember? The Lord alone is God. (laughs) When your teenager says, I'm done, and slams the door in your face and you're like, what do you need to remember? The Lord alone is God. When the lug nut won't come off the wheel stud and you break your torque wrench trying because you're not like Daniel Kachigno and you think you can do your own car repairs, 
<laughs> what do I need to remember? <laughs> the Lord is God. When, when you stumble and fall, yet again, into the same stinking sin, Christian, what do you need to remember? The Lord alone is God. The Lord is God. That the spiritual and physical enemies arrayed against you in this life are, are more than your enemies. They're Jesus' enemies. And the battle is the Lord's. And in verse 40, he swears by his own existence that his work of saving you by judging your enemies will surely succeed. That's the story. That's the gospel, isn't it? The Lord's the rock who gives life, the rock we reject, the rock of judgment, and the rock of salvation. That sounds great. So let's bring the band up and let's sing. No. <laughs> well, we will, but not quite. We're close. But this story, just like the gospel, because it is the gospel, Deuteronomy is the gospel through Moses, if you would. It demands a response. Demands a response. And it's found in verse 43. Look there. When with this. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. Just focus on the first part. How do, we, how do we need to respond to this story? Response one, there's two of them. First one, rejoice with the Lord. Did you see that? It's not just rejoice in the Lord or rejoice about the Lord. It's rejoice with the Lord. What, what is the presupposition? God himself from eternity past into eternity future is ceaselessly rejoicing and delighting in his own great salvation. He's God-centered, and joyfully so. And he commands us to follow his example. Here's, here's what that means, okay? Trusting Jesus to save you requires more than just mental assent or knowing what he did for you on the cross because you saw it in so many flannel graphs when you were growing up in Sunday school. No, okay? Trusting Jesus to save you requires wholehearted affection savoring the good news of the gospel, treasuring Jesus for who he is and what, and what he's done for you. It sounds like Psalm 118, 21. I thank you that you've answered me and become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is worthy of note in our eyes. No, <laughs> it's marvelous in our eyes. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The first necessary response to the gospel story is to rejoice in the Lord, delight in the Lord, trust in the Lord, and thereby enter into God's own joy in God. Here's the second. And it's the overflow of the first. Look back at verse 43. We gladly submit to his rule. Whereas Moses says, we bow down. 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, 
This is what joy in God looks like. This is what trust in God looks like. This is what delighting in God the way God delights in God looks like. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Why not? Because if Jesus is your treasure, no act of sacrificial obedience is too great in order for you to have him. We rejoice with the Lord and we submit to the Lord. Which means whenever you read God's big story or you hear God's big story, like we've heard it this morning, you have a choice to make. Will you respond that way or will you not? Will you take it to heart or will you not? Verse 46, take heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Christian, how will you know if you've taken this story of the gospel to heart? What's the test? It's simple. Does the truth about Jesus come out in the words you speak? Is, is the pattern of your life, your influence on the people around you, starting with those God's given you primary responsibility, your children if you're a parent, but, but extending to the fellow members of the church in which God's placed you, are they the beneficiary of of your words of encouragement and instruction and correction and warning that direct their gaze to Jesus and equip them to follow him and love him? Is the pattern of your life a pattern of gospel-centered discipleship, in other words? Because those who take the gospel to heart demonstrate that through a life of words that point other people to Jesus. And here's why that lifestyle is so important and why when we get to the end of this book soon, we're going to go right to Paul's letter to Titus and we're going to linger on the priority of gospel-centered discipleship. It's important, friends, for the same reason verse 47 says it's important because the word of Christ King's way is no empty word for you. It is your very life. Because it's through the good news of the gospel, of the word made flesh, that we come to enjoy relationship with the Lord of life. He gives you spiritual life through his word. He sustains your life through his word. He he explains our life through his word. He restores our life through his word. May, May we rejoice and submit to the word of Christ this year, my friends that we might remember in all we do, Jesus is the center of the story. Let's pray. Father, we need your help because we quickly forget that there is no rock besides you. We quickly forget. Lord, give grace, I pray, to remember Believe, trust. You alone are God. There is no other rock besides you. Thank you for being a God, a rock, who works salvation through judgment on our enemies. I pray, Father, that you would help us to hope in you and trust you, and that we might know. So we remember the gospel Sunday after Sunday this year 
that indeed there is no other God besides you. Amen.